The vast majority of criminological theory has been developed in the affluent global north in contexts of peace and a stable nation-state. So how applicable are these theories to contexts in the global south, and how can we centre southern perspectives to help decolonise the dominant criminological gaze? My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Kerry Carrington is a research professor in the School of Justice in the Faculty of Law at Queensland University of Technology, Australia. She is the lead chief investigator on an Australian Research Council discovery project, Preventing Gender Violence, Lessons from the Global South. Her team has undertaken a world-first study on how women's police stations in Argentina respond to and prevent gender violence. In 2016, Kerry was elected a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences Australia for outstanding and distinguished contributions to the social sciences. She is also the recipient of a number of awards from the American Society of Criminology, the Lifetime Achievement Award, Division of Critical Criminology, and Distinguished Scholar Award, Division of Women and Crime. Kerry is a co-author of Southern Criminology 2019, Feminism and Global Justice 2015, and over a hundred other publications as well as the founding chief editor of the International Journal for Crime, Justice and Social Democracy. So much to talk about, and I'm I'm really happy that I get a chance to chat with Professor Kerry Carrington. So, Kerry, welcome to Justice Focus. Uh, Welcome, Omar, and thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, welcome to the listeners of this uh, great OST program. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I'll I'll take that as a a great compliment from you. Thank you. yeah, like I say, so many things I, I want to ask you about. And, you know, most pressing amongst all those things is this the, the paradigm that you are sort of jointly heading, this new Southern criminology movement within criminology. So I'd love to just hear from you, you know, how that got off the ground. And then obviously we want to talk about what, we, what we're talking about when we say Southern criminology. But yeah, free reign to, to say, how, how did this get off the ground in the first place? Okay, um... Well, it, it doesn't really have a linear progression, but mm. um, the whole concept of Southern criminology really is um, <clears throat> takes its cue from Southern theory. Now, Southern theory was something pioneered by Raymond Connell. Mm. Um, the book was published in 2007. Mm. Um, I reviewed the book. I mean, it, it, it was a long gestation for me coming to terms with what Southern theory and decolonial theory meant for the field I worked in. Mm, so when mm. I read Connell's work and I, I heard Connell's work, it was just a really long period of gestation because it's quite confronting, mm. Southern theory. It's, it's sort of yeah. almost saying to you, everything you've learned is, is biased, everything you've learned mm. is um, Northern thinking, everything mm. you've learned that has succeeded itself from representing itself as universal, timeless, placeless in the social sciences. It's not. It's yeah. not any of those things. And then, um, so it's it sort of you. It, it, you have to. It shakes you. It shakes certainties of intellectual foundations. It yeah. shakes the certainty of of knowledge. And and it really does question a lot of the the truths that we assumed were truisms. Um, and then it, it, I kind of 
came to realise that, um, gee, criminology shares all these biases. Hmm. It does all these things and it does all these things. It, yeah. it constructs problem crime problems um, from, a, from a northern lens. If people are worlds outside of the global north are studied, they have to be studied on their terms using their theories, using their, their lenses and a gaze. So it, it hmm. became a project born out of, I suppose, a deep realisation and reflection and then a deep um, frustration that we don't have the conceptual intellectual tools to, of our own to, to think. Um, so that's how it was sort of born. It, it, it occurred over a long period of time. Mm, yeah. And I know that, you know, some of the these very successful papers that you've written related to Southern criminology and the, the book, you've co-authored them with several people. And I just wondered how you, yeah. you know, when you're putting together something that's heavily theoretical and, you know, kind of paradigm shifting in, in lots of ways, how do you, how did you balance that with working with okay. several other people on that to create something together? That's, you know, it's hard enough yeah. thinking theory by yourself. <laughs> well, one, one of the characteristic features of my style of scholarship is in fact that I work, I work well in teams. Mm. And I've always been a team player, a team member, and often in interdisciplinary teams because we we push the envelope of each other's edges. See mm. what I mean? Mm. So in, in that space, new knowledge can come forward, mm. and I think that's what happened here. We'd been working with I'd been working with Maxima Sozo. That all started off when about, oh goodness knows I can't remember at least fifteen twenty years ago. Maxima Sozo translated one of my articles from English into Spanish. Right. I then developed this relationship with, with with translation, and then I felt well. Originally, it started. I wanted to repay Maxima for doing that. How can I do that? And then I started to translate his work from Spanish into English. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, we started to realise that we were we were pushing boundaries and thinking logics. And of course, I've always co-written with Russell Hogg because my husband as well. Mm. And it just so happened that um, we were we, we were spending time together and we, we were thinking through this and so we just worked on this critique of, of, of uh, and we all came at it from different angles and approaches and we'd all work separately and then we'd bring it together and then it would sort of mush together and yeah, then we'd yeah. try and make it come. Because when you read our work, it reads like it comes across as one voice, but that's because we've really synthesized and you know work through many versions together um it's it is a craft working mm. with other people and it's much harder but it's i think i think sometimes when you work with other people you do get those real breakthroughs and southern criminology is a paradigm shift it, it, it's it's applying to criminology a, a, a kind of epistemological and ontological a, mm. a sort of a shift in knowledge the sweeping the social sciences all around mm. the world, the, the decolonial impulse. The, mm. uh, but the southern one is a bit different in that it's not it's not as radical as a lot of the post post colonial theory. People often mm. get confused and think it's the same as post colonialism, but it's not. Okay, would you like to say a little bit about how they how they differ a little bit, just so we can? Yes, see. they do. They differ. The, well, for a start, the origins of a lot of post-colonial thought come from post-colonial theorists um, and people and, and theorists of colour and critical race studies, whereas, mm. and of course, Sayed, the work of Sayed, whereas mm. um, that's not been our influence. Our influences have been much more um, Santos um, and much more the, 
the kind of border criminologists and Miguel mm. and the those kind of more Latino um, uh, theorists who sort yeah. of argue that that there is really no no past that's pre-colonial that you can go back to. Mm. And because of that, what we're in now, there is no such thing as a post-colonial world. Mm. What, so it, it, I suppose the difference is one's fairly utopian and one strives to decolonise to get back to some sort of s- status or some state mm. where post-colonial relations no longer exist and that one that we're kind of into border, it's about coming to terms with that and moving on through the middle, I suppose, along uh, mm. on the edge. And it means that we don't dismiss everything that was produced by, you know, Enlightenment thinkers or colonial thinkers or, you know, we're not saying that all of that is wrong or mistaken. Mm. All we're saying is that it comes from a particular perspective and has a particular relevance to a particular time and place. And that's very different because post-colonialists and decolonists would say, oh, that's colonialist knowledge. That knowledge right, is, right. has no relevance or place in, in, in a decolonial world. So it, it, that's where the two perspectives mm. are different. One is much more utopian and, and radical, I suppose, yeah. and we're, I think we're, we're sort of in the middle. We're saying mm. we recognise the problems, the gaps, the blind spots, of northern thinking, metropolitan thinking, colonialist knowledges. But we can also say that there is lots of this stuff that we can learn together. And also we we very much want to work to bridge global divides. So mm. the whole project of Southern Criminology then is one that it's an intellectual project, it's a political project and a theoretical project. But part of the practicality of that is to actually bridge global divides, to work with people from the global north. To work mm. with people from um, who may have been working from these frames, just I suppose inspire them, invigorate them to reflect on their biases. It's like critical race studies tries to inspire white people to reflect mm. on their own privilege. We're, yeah. we're, tr- we're saying that to all the thinkers, you know, reflect on your privilege. And that means practical things like when you're putting a special edition together, don't just put it together with your mates from one country mm. <laughs> think yeah. about the, the think about the world think about how the issue you're writing about might look like from a different part of the world yeah. um so it, it's about and we're very much into bridging and, and i suppose that's the old sort of you know platinum idea of bridging capital that mm. it, bridging capital gets you a long way and helps you move to other places so it's 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 a bridging kind of a uh paradigm shift yeah um, yeah it's it's not one that's saying everything that came before was wrong or misled or mistaken or biased or not useful mm. just the tendency you get when you read those really kind of profound critiques of finalist knowledge you know mm. they're almost rhetorical i mean they have their place but um that's and that's why mm. we were criticized because we didn't use that those theorists in the construction mm-hmm. of Southern criminology, but we didn't use them because we didn't want to go down that track. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe, I don't know, some of the way I think about it is, so there's sort of the Franz Fanon yeah. kind of ideas about 
wanting an epistemological break where we're saying yes. everything that's come before is sort of you, you know you can't rebuild the, the master's yes. house with the master's tools that kind of thing um but that yes. would mean not using any of the knowledge and any of the theories yes. that are already created and what you're saying is that it may be a, a sort of a more practical outlook saying we're not throwing away all of the previous theories that we've worked before but actually it's exposing the positionality in in each of those theorists rather than them saying what that the, their ideas are universal or you know they're yes. completely objective it's saying yes. you know most of them have come from north american or western european theorists and yes. that's from their point of view and so you want to move that lens so that taking that positionality from the that northern or western gaze and then taking it to latin america or, or africa or different different places and starting from the from the, from the point of of theorizing from there but and then bridging the the gap between the two yes yes exactly yeah. and yeah. um so so in fact it's it's about saying how we can advance knowledge through bridging mm. and a, a, mm. a good example that would be say Foucault um now Foucault um of course theorized punishment you know everybody knows he's one of the most incredibly intellectually forceful um figures in the theorization of punishment in the 20th century mm. um but he forgot to – one part of his expositions completely, utterly overlooked the main form of punishment in the 18th century, 18th century and that was convict transportation. Mm. And that's because it, it, it was happening in the global south and the empires of the global north um, were, were transporting convicts, slaves, England was, were, was transporting all of their criminals to Australia, Australia for centuries. Yeah. None of that figures in his work at all. Convict mm. transportation is completely, it's like a blind spot. Why? It's not because there's anything wrong or faulty or fundamental or, with, you know, with, with that corpus of knowledge. It's just because of the positionality. Mm. Because of him, when he was writing, he was writing at a time of the growth of the asylum. Yeah. The great growth of the asylum and the, and the emergence of prison and all those other things. Um, yeah. So... It's really about positioning how knowledge becomes created and how it takes off. And mm. then, of course, um, the blind spots within it and then saying, hey, from the point of view of the global self, nine-tenths of the global self was colonised by the powers of the global mm. war right up until, you know, a century and a half ago. Yeah. Not long. It's not long in the world's history. And yeah. there was there's millions of slaves and convicts transported to the global south and so, so, so convictism and tra transportation became a whole method of, in fact, settling the gold south. Do you get that? Mm. It's kind of like a, in, in, you know, so the whole kind of colonial dominance of the gold south was done through, through a, a lot of it was, was, was through transportation, transportation of slave labour, convicts, etc. Or yeah. um, by turning um, indigenous labour into slave labour, as they did in Australia, as they did in Australian people are really shocked when they discover that that Australian Indigenous peoples only had the right to be recognised as citizens. 1969, before that, their children weren't allowed to go to school. They weren't allowed to vote. They weren't allowed to earn money. You know, mm. they were they were welfareised. They were missionised. They, I mean, people in the got and and this this is a British this is what British colonialism did to Australia. I suppose that's mm. the other reason why I'm so passionate about it because. 
I'm living in a place where that history is so blind to a lot of terminologies yeah. in the global north, and yet I'm living it in it. We're living in it now. We're living in yeah. its legacy here in Australia. This is why, you know, we, we have our rates of incarceration of Indigenous peoples are something like 35 times their population. Hmm. It's, it's absolutely horrific. Um, it's, it's worse than catastrophic. They're the most imprisoned people in the world. And it's got a hell of a lot to do with our colonial legacy. But yeah. having said that, it, we can never go back to a pristine Australian continent. There's no, you know, there's 25 yeah. million people. We, you know, we can't. And that's what makes us different to sort of post colonialism um, theorists because, we, we, you know, there's a pragmatism in, in, in I suppose it's a, yeah. I suppose in another way it's a difference between left realism and left idealism. There's a bit of we've always been realists. Whenever we mm. I mean the other thing is when we were engaged in all those debates about critical criminology with Jock Young and Ian Taylor and we wrote that book Criminal Critical Criminologists, this is Russell and I when we mm. edited all that work. We were, we also came at that from a realist perspective as mm. well. And yeah. that's why it's just many of the same people in that critical realism are involved in the sovereign criminology, and I don't think it's an accident. Yeah, no, and I just wanted to pick up on that that point about you know trying to go back to find what pre-colonial thinking might be, and I think it's a really difficult position because lots of people are saying, okay, you know, we don't want to think like the colonizers said that we had to think, and mm. but trying to understand what was you know indigenous. Argentinian theories before the European conquerors came and and told them what was knowledge and what was legitimate to be understood as knowledge. Like it's so hard to know what was the the, the thinking beforehand because today the reality is everything is mixed with um, yeah. sort of internationalized, modernized thinking, and so. It's it's yeah. That's it's that pragmatism of, of how do we how do we deal with the people that are alive in. in I've just used this example of Argentina right now because I know we're going to come on to it a bit later. But um, I know in your Southern criminology texts, you you know you, you do emphasise empire as an absence in a lot of well in in the vast majority of criminology theorisation and it's you know, yes yeah. I wondered if you want to say a little bit about how empire. In you know some parts of the world, it it, it seeps into every aspect of your society. In yes. other places, it doesn't. And then, sort of this kind of modernization um, theory that uh, that is also yes. sort of leaks into theories. I know, I'll leave it there because I know okay. you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, I do. So the so um, most criminologists, most if you think about it, most criminology is you know it it, it it's kind of it's peacetime criminology. Mm. Assumes the boundaries of the nation state. Um, it, do, it, it, it doesn't look outside. Um, it doesn't look historically. Rarely looks historically. Some some does, but it rarely does. And so the way in which empire or past patterns of legacies of colonialism shape current patterns in, of, of, of say crime or violence or, or mm. incarceration are outside of the purview. Of analysis, so that's what we mean by the, the lack of the blind spots and the yeah. lack of consideration of, of, of empire. But empire's footprint is all over the world, and 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 in some places it's more prevalent than others. But in in Australia, you, you, 
can simply not understand our patterns of our racialized patterns of crime mm. unless you understand the legacy of colonialism and, and empire. And it's the same in many other parts of the world as well. Um, now, the other question was about modernization. So, the other key assumption of much criminological thought and theorizing um, is that, and since the Chicago School, uh, is that um, cities are the sites for cities of criminogenic cities and their orbits. Mm. Their sprawling masses are what's deeply problematic about the modern era, and so we need to have a criminology that is that that interrogates the problems of cities, problems of migration, and mm. so what you've got is a criminology that's been very focused on the crime problems of the of the cities, the metropolises of the global north, mm. the Los Angeleses, the New Yorks, the Londons of the world, and a lot of that kind of criminology has then rested on social disorganisation theory and then come to construct the problems as outsiders. It's always the migrants, the slums, the working right. class, the unemployed. The, so it's been, it's been that kind of a criminology that's sort of problematised problem populations. So it's mm. it's had a very easy alliance with the state, hasn't been critical, hasn't been reflective. Um, so that's the kind of criminology I wouldn't, so critical criminologies in that boat, but certainly the vast majority of the criminology undertaken in, in America is definitely like that. Mm. Um, and that's the sort of criminology that Jock Young and critical criminologists always argued against. Um, I'd say that that sort of um, those and, and particularly the positivist traditions in criminology, you know, and the and the life course criminologists that that they're just you know contemporary examples of Lombroso a lot of them. Mm. Um, or pro, you know, the biological. So it's it's so criminology is this incredibly strange discipline that has the most ultra right wing conservative pro Lobrosians in its fold, who do, who, do, who use those methodologies to interrogate the pathologies mm. within. And then, interestingly, nearly all of those when we've written a piece called "Deconstructing Criminology's Origin Stories." And mm. that's published in the Asian Journal of Criminology. It came after Southern Criminology. And when you look at the origin stories, the origin stories came from Lombroso. Um, um, and Lombroso um, harvested the global south as a data mind for yeah. evidence of, ev of evolution. Now, he went and collected the skulls from Australia, New Zealand, Asia, um, mm. and, he, and he compared these skulls with the skulls of the prisoners that he was, you know, um, who'd been executed, mm. etc. And he said, these skulls are like the skulls of the types that I've I've um, um, collected or that have been collected from other parts of the world. Um, and they were the skulls of, 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 of what he called natives. Mm. He then, and native Indians. And so people forget, and in his book, uh, people forget that he, his method was 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 based on measuring skulls, and then his whole yeah, life, his eugenics, whole idea yeah. of ativism was eugenics, but it was based on the nature from the global south, and the mm. Negro woman and the Red Indian woman, and he, he yeah. actually has images of those in his book. So the whole of that kind of criminology was was based on 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 constructing um, the others from the global south as as images of you know, of criminal. Um, species. So yeah. I suppose that's why I've been trying to de 
you try to deconstruct that. But that's and then from there that that went into um, you know social organization theory or strain theory or there's other theories. Okay, there's another yeah. there's another reason why we were really interested in, in creating a kind of a, a, a paradigm shift or break mm-hmm. or a, a rupture is that, uh, and this is because we became frustrated with criminologists within our own country or within our own mm-hmm. global south. Um, and I'll give you an example. Um, going to an Asian Society of Criminology meeting and, 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 and you listen to paper after paper that, that, that you know pulls out American strain theory to try mm. and analyze patterns of uh, crime and culture in deeply collectivist communities, and they're wondering why their, their models aren't working, and they're mm. wondering why their models are coming up with all these errors, and they're saying, yeah. "Oh, it doesn't work in just it's not working in China." Yeah. Of course it wouldn't. Why yeah. would strain theory, which is based on on the model of an individualist? And, and that the way to status and freedom is through individual gain. How on earth? And then to to make up for shortfalls and that, you, you know, criminals engage in criminal activity to, mm. to to try and boost their status, to acquire the property or whatever it is they think they need. Mm-hmm. Why on earth would that theory have any truck whatsoever in Asia, in, in collectives? Where there's no concept of, a, yeah. of that individualism in Hinduist yeah, content yeah. cultures, or in where culture is so ingrained, yeah. um, and and so what struck me, and then that's when I found out that there was fifteen thousand studies in China using strain theory. I, I just thought, what on earth are they doing? Why yeah. are they doing it? Yeah. And then that's when we that's when I became involved with Jing Hong Lu, and and that's so he so there's a whole network of us working in Asian criminology, working in, um, uh, you know, Latino, uh, working in, in the Oceanic, and we all started to, uh, we were having conferences, all of the conferences happened at QUT, and we were all kind of sharing our civil frustrations about, mm. well, why on earth, and, and we, we call this vertical alignment, you know, why, why, were, why were we just happy to accept our place in, in the vertical alignment of the, of the hierarchy of knowledges? Why, why were we just so willing to to do that? You know, why, mm. why why can't it be lateral? Why can't we be on an equal par? Why can't we? Um, why do we have to be the the, native, the the native the natives from the global south? Why can't mm. we create theories that are and concepts and ideas that are much more bespoke to yeah to our presence and to relevant our to the current context. and relevant to the so that yeah. so that's how it started. And you talked about Latin America. Well. Latin America doesn't really have, well, not, well Argentina, I'll, go, I'll say Argentina. Argentina has very few inhabitants, uh, less than 1%. It's, it's, this is a dreadful indictment on the climate, but they have less than 1% of their population would identify as Indigenous. Uh, but about 35 and 40%, uh, maybe more, are mixed, they're mixed, mm. mixed and they identify as and so you have a completely different. So Pascalism doesn't, doesn't. They see themselves as um, already in that phase. Do you see that? Because they are in a. Because colonialism's had four or five hundred years. You know, so the, right, they're in yeah. it. What? What? What on earth? I mean, 
what so post colonialism just doesn't have any churches at all in, in those parts of Latin America. I mean, it doesn't mean that, that, that there isn't a place for Indigenous knowledges, and there is, mm. and there's a revival of those in, in mostly around Andean Indigenous communities, and that's, 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 but, but it's still very, it's, it's very limited. And mm-hmm. um, so it doesn't speak, so post-colonialism just doesn't speak to the reality. Like, Max and I will laugh and say, you know, Fuck would colonialism look like in what would it what would it look like in Argentina? Well, ninety nine percent of the community wouldn't be here. Yeah, yeah. I guess would you, would you say post colonialists would argue that it's it is still colonial in that sense if only one percent of the population? No, I guess that's not your position. It's not our position because yeah. it's moved and, and mm. you know things are dynamic and. And it, no, because there's synthesis and movement and change and and so you so it, there's a huge movement. So most most of those who have some sort of mix some link to the pre-colonial past are, are Mexicans. Okay, well, and so it doesn't I, make any sense. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we've moved to talk about. Um, well, we've kind of talked about theories from different places, and you've just yeah. talked about Argentina, and one of the um, one of the issues that you highlight in Southern criminology is the fact that theories and criminal justice policies often travel in one direction when we're thinking internationally, you know, from the West to the global South. And so you talk about the, the global South as always being recipients of policy that were created elsewhere. And so I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that and then lead then on into talking to your, about your paper, which is, how women's police stations empower women, widen access to justice and prevent gender violence. And so that is an example of theory that have come from the global South and it can be, can transfer the other way. So, yeah. Okay. So uh, one of the legacies then of of, um, the political economy and knowledge where um, knowledge is uh, dominated by the ways of thinking from the global North and what Hmm. that kind of, just called Anglo-centric thinking, Northern thinking. Uh, one of the legacies of that is that there's an assumption that um, transfer goes one way from north to south. Mm. Policies go one way. Knowledge goes one way. Um, so, a- again, part of our resistance to that hierarchy and that hierarchy of knowledge and policy transfer has been to um, look for examples of the opposite where Policy innovations could come from the global mm-hmm. south and possibly transfer to the global north or elsewhere. Now, Argentina happens to be um, uh, an astonishing place um, because it went through the most hideous and brutal military dictatorship. And when it came out of it, which, which you know, led to the, the execution of many thousands of and they don't really know how many, but mm. huge numbers. Many of them students, and many of them female, um, and women were, um, uh, and most of them were women students and leftists involved in um, against the military, and mm. they were abducted, systematically tortured, um, impregnated, raped, impregnated, had the babies. They were then executed by being pushed out of a plane, and the babies were taken and taken to the houses, the families of the 
military and they grew up there. So if anybody's ever read The Handmaid's Tale, um, mm. it's based on what happened in Argentina. It's a, it's a, so wow. what's happened in Argentina has been astonishing. So when when they went through the revolution, and I first visited Argentina in 1983 or, or four, it was um, when um, it was after the overthrow of the military dictatorship um, and I, I just had to go there and I went there and that was my first time and I've been mm. there many, many, many times since. I've been going mm. there for, for well over 30 years. Uh, yes, 30 years. So what happened in – so Argentina became this site of, of incredible um, – um, in that post-dictatorship period of a rebuilding of a democratic society and it became the part – they wanted to rebuild their society to make it you know, corruption-resistant, resistant to um, sexual violence, resistant. And, of course, um, they had a huge problem with the police because the police were involved in the military dictatorships and, of course, they had a massive problem with legitimation and trust. Mm. And they had a huge problem with women and they had a huge problem with machista and cultures of, of, of machista as well. So what were they to do? One thing they did was they set up the truth commissions and they set up transitional justice. Now, that's one massive innovation that Argentina started with and they mm. went through their massive investigation, um, new non-commerce um, uh, is called Never Again, um, and... That whole idea of truth-telling and transitional justice is something that then was taken up in South Africa and by the post-apartheid regime there, and now it's been mm. taken up all over the world. Now, that's just one example of where Argentina has shone as a source of an incredibly great idea in the justice mm. Um And also, I won't go into any more about that, but that's just one. But this other one, which is much well less known, is women's police stations. Now, in, in, in Spanish, they're actually called... De la mejor y familia, which means police for women and families. They're not mm. called women's police stations. That's just how they've been interpreted. Mm. Now, they um, are an invention, very unique invention of, of Latin America. They started in 1985 in Brazil, 1988 in Argentina. Argentina today in the province of Buenos Aires has 128 of these specialist police stations and 16 offices. They employ 2,300 specialist police officers, 90% of whom are female. Now, you don't have to be female to be a police officer in one of these um, specialist stations, but you do have to do gender training. You do have to work from a gender perspective, mm. um, and you do have to want to work there. So that's why it's 90% female. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, they so they operate from a very different philosophy. They don't operate. They don't prioritise a criminal justice response. Um, Two-thirds of the women who use them do not go down the pathway of seeking a formal response, um, but they have their matters resolved or solved. Mm -hmm. They send perpetrators off to um, places to unlearn violence. They come at it as a very conceptual way. They're, very hot, they're really conceptual. Their argument is that men who are violent are over-socialised. They argue that men do not are not inherently violent. It's not a feminist understanding. They argue that mm. men that, that they, they argue that men are not inherently violent. What, the men who are violent are over socialized by machismo. So therefore we right. need to desocialize them and we need to denormalize their cultures and denormalize. So 
so that's where they so they yeah um, there's a phrase that you use in there saying yeah. that perpetrators need to unlearn and denaturalize gender violence i think that's yes. a really interesting way of thinking that, about so it. it's a very different approach to it it's mm. it's it's like it's not natural it's not nor it's not and these men who are need to be desocialized they're over socialized by other men and they realize this culture a lot of it's mm. culture and they realize some of it's got to do with religion and culture and those norms anyway so these women's possessions um work in multidisciplinary teams with social workers mm. and lawyers you can see there's a very strong influence of of, of psychoanalysis in, in these it's, it's amazing that there is it's a very strong kind of influence of sort of of uh, counseling in these um, really mm. yes mm. and they all have counselors and they, they set up survivors groups for victims to mm. um to strengthen them so that they can resist re-victimization mm. and so that they they no longer accept and they they send them and they send the men off to unknown violence so they they have that that view um uh so and they so operate very differently, and they also. Sorry. No, no. I was just going to say, just to just to kind of highlight how it is different, a different approach from the global north, because obviously there are some places that will do counselling in prison, in in police stations, and some places in the global north there are some female units in the global north. But you you point out how that is is different, and it is a um sort of a, a southern initiative. I didn't just want to sort of highlight that. Yes, so they, they don't actually operate out of police stations. They yeah. operate out of houses. They're converted houses in the suburbs. They don't have holding cells. They're designed to receive victims, not offenders. Mm. They all have uh, spaces for children. They're the they, they don't resemble anything like a police station. They do offer mm. a 365-day uh, emergency response, but they don't, mm. and, the, and the women and the police do wear their uniforms and have guns, but they don't have cells. Um, and they work in multidisciplinary teams. And women are always greeted by a civilian. They're not greeted by a police officer, or nearly mm. always. Um, and you think that's so important? So they operate very, yes, very important. And they, um, um, so they they also have a mandate for prevention. Um, and that means that they um, they work with the community. Uh, and so, and that, that they're, under that mandate for prevention, they, they, they have to do community um, educative consciousness raising activities once a month. Mm. But that's, they love that, you know, so they, right. they um, and it's very, very creative, the work that they do. And they also do run the women's support or they assist women's support groups to help to, to run themselves. Mm. Um, um, and so... Um, and in many of these, if you have a look at my website, you'll see all the um, um, murals. A lot of them have huge murals, um, um, and they're painted by survivors. And they say things like "rompe e silencio," which means "break the silence." Mm. Um, so they're just worlds apart. It's really hard to describe just how they operate. That's so different, but they really embed themselves in the community. They're very different. Um, they do things like, um, um, would you like me to describe some of those things? Yeah, no, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. And also whether you think when you, when you're describing and, and kind of showcasing how, how well this works, do you feel like it's something that you then want to present to the rest of the world as in that they should 
think about adopting some of these practices or just as the way you're saying sort of northern born theories mm. shouldn't move to the global south we should be worried about it going the opposite way so so yeah i'd love to hear a bit more detail about it but also how you feel about that dynamic about policies transferring yeah, sure. in the opposite direction as well so one thing about latin america is that they have a lot of days festivals um and they celebrate the you know the day of the mother of the child the day of this huge national women's day um mm. and um so um, they use these festivals and these occasions um to participate in community actions and they you know, they do lots of things like set up stalls and they provide information, but but they do um, on a routine daily basis. Once a week they'll go to the big intersections downtown at the time that they know women are travelling to or from to pick up their kids from school and when the light goes red, eight, you know, this is an eight-lane highway, when the light mm. goes red because they know it goes red for a long time, you know, there's about 15 police women and they go out and they talk to all the cars that's a, quite a common thing that happens at the right, intersections okay. yeah. in Latin America. Yeah. Um, and they talk and they ha- hand out information and they hand out their address. Um, quite often people in the community give them presents, give them flowers, give them, you know, they're not allowed to take money, but mm. quite often they get. And um, so that's just one thing they do. To, and they, they do that because they know that women are going to be on the road at that time. Right. And they, yeah. they look for cars with women and children. Um, they also, um, it, another example, they, they had a lot of problems with Catholicism for years. So they used to target um, particular, if they, particular congregations and priests that used to preach that women were unequal to men and women should basically, you know, cop a flogging from their husband. Um, right. So that was pretty much the standard in, in Argentina, you know, during the military dictatorship. And mm. so they certainly knew how to deal with them. And so every Sunday they go to the to the con- when the congregation would exit the church, they'd be standing outside the gates of the church, and they'd be handing out leaflets, you know, domestic violence crime. Should you ever mm. need our help? Here's our card. And of course, that absolutely enraged the priests, um, mm. but they took them on. Um, and they used to do the same if um, you know um, um, bars and where you know. They used to do the same in, in, in certain places as well. Mm, yeah, um, really. so, so they do all sorts of – they're very creative and inventive what they do. They, um, Christmas time, they know that Christmas time domestic violence is going to be – there's going to be spikes. That's a pattern all mm-hmm. over the world. But yeah. they they have a they have a street Christmas party. Um, they collect um, donations all year round for this and they put their business card essentially on – on, on packets of lollies and they go mm. out into the suburbs and the boroughs and they distribute it. It's a way of distributing their information. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it works. Yeah. Um, it works. <laughs> yeah, good. It really, it's a very clever way. I mean, could you imagine police officers in England or, or in, in, here in <laughs> Brisbane running around the streets handing out lollies with their, with their, with their business card on it? Yeah, well, maybe, maybe they should. Maybe they should. So your, your next question was a more conceptual one. What should the work, what should we do? So I have done another piece of research in Australia just now, and I'm, and it's based on the premise that, you know, not everything that's done in Latin American style will, will translate to Australia because mm. it's very distinctive, diverse cultures. Yeah. But there may well be some aspects that are transferable 
And so I have done that research, and that research mm. has found that there are nine aspects that are transferable. Okay, so the, not, the nine aspects of the way um, women's possessions work in Argentina that could possibly transfer to Australia that we mm. found in our is working in multidisciplinary teams with lawyers, counsel, social workers, collaborating mm. with local agencies to prevent gender violence, provide yeah. emergency support with victims, design police stations specifically to receive victims, provide childcare and space for children, understand that violence prevention, mm. sorry, understanding violence prevention work with, with the local community, um, and providing special design interview rooms for victims, working with both victims and offenders to break the cycles of violence. Um, so that's very much taking the gender perspective. Mm. So what we found didn't transfer was um, um, very well was um, employing only police, female police, but that's not an aspect of women's police sessions anyway. Mm. Um, as I said, it's it's not. Anybody, a male or female, can, can become a police officer in Argentina in, a, in one of these vicious police stations. It just so no. happens that it's women who prefer to do that. Okay, thanks. And I'd also like to ask you about the journal that you set up with several colleagues, which is called the International Journal for Crime, Justice and Social Democracy. So how did that process happen where you, you set that up a little while ago? And I know that uh, open access is important to you as well. So, yeah, what's the story behind that journal? Yeah, so thanks for that question. The journal is um, part of the journey of southernising criminology hmm. um, because what it does is because it's the International Journal on Justice and Social Democracy was established in 2012. It's open access, um, which means it's free to download and free to publish. But we went for a very high quality international that bridges global divides. It has 109 members on the editorial board wow. from something like 22 countries. We have recruited specifically Indigenous scholars from um, not just Australia, but from um, Chile and Colombia and you know, other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So we have very much tried to make it like what Southern criminology would look like in, in that it's a bridge. And we have a mix of some ECRs and some very established. So it's, again, it's that kind of recipe of trying to bridge global divides and to level out the hierarchies. Now, it's been incredibly successful. Um, it's the number one ranked journal using those survivor rankings, which I know have their flaws. Mm. Um, but it is ranked the top journal in Australia, and Oceania. it's just come an incredibly long way. It's a Q1 journal. It's mm-hmm. got had six hundred thirty thousand downloads, having as much impact, or it's having impact um, that's now equivalent to some of the big journals in the global world, like criminology, feminist criminology, and it's done it outside the paywall. Whereas all those other journals are still inside the paywall. We refuse to go behind the paywall because that completely disadvantages open free access of knowledge to all those from the global south who don't have the resources to access yeah. the knowledge. So that's yeah. what makes it part of this model. And I have to take my hat off to our library and QUT, my university, because where our university is um, is a um, trailblazer in open access. 
and our our um, librarians, many of our librarians are much more radical than we, we know. But oh, yeah. they've been they've been watching this, you know, um, the the um, global dominance of of knowledge and and you know this incredibly Elsevier's dominance and the way it makes money. You know, mm. It makes money off of our backs. So the public pays for academics. We we do the work. We then either some people pay for their work to be published by them. If not, give it away for free. We do all the free mm. reviewing. It's an incredible business model. They then make millions of it, selling it back to the universities where we work. Yeah. So that business model, which is based on capitalism, a global capitalism, but it's also based on 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 recreating the, the hierarchy of knowledge as such that it's, it's knowledge is outside of the reach of academics and scholars and people who don't have money, who don't have the resources. So that's what's so wrong with that kind of publishing model. So that's why the journal was so important to us and that's why we do this. And we just put on board a, a new editor from, from David Guez. He's from Colombia. Oh, he's great, yeah. Well, I just wanted to say, yeah, congratulations on on all that and the success of it. It's, it's brilliant, and I, yeah, I'm I'm very happy to to see more and more places lean into open access, and uh, yeah, I think that knowledge should be should be for everybody, and that makes so much sense. So you've, you've you just talked a little bit about sort of the Southern criminology journey, and you know, and then you started to talk about impact, and I think that's perfect chance to ask you a little bit more about your own personal. Uh, journey in criminology and and the impact you hope to have as an individual you know I talked to lots of people on this podcast about impact and and how you know there's there's such large-scale issues that we want to change and you know you're taking on international <laughs> criminal justice theory which is no small um, no, no small thing to do and so how do you how do you feel do you want to have an impact in criminology um well, I think I think we've well. This, I think working collectively with others who on this journey is already mm. having an impact. Um, mm. We're we're already no longer hiding in corners at international conferences. We're or we're, we're, we're no longer not going to them. We're, we're also convening our own. Mm. Um, we, we're, I think first and foremost, there's a lot more confidence. You know, the scholarship in Latin America has just really taken off in the last ten years. Um, and in the last, and it's having an exponential explosion. And, you know, I, I'm sort of much more familiar with that than I'm in other parts of the world. But, you know, mm. it's just that the, it's, I think it's a confidence boost as well that they don't all have to publish in English, that they don't all have to publish mm. and reproduce concepts from the global north um, yeah. in their papers to get them published. Um, so I, th- I think it's about, um, um, you know, setting off a domino effect. I think mm. that's how I'd like to see, see it, and a, a domino effect and a ripple effect all around the, the, the world. But but the legacy for criminology, though, is, is not one to – I don't want – not just me. We haven't wanted this to be a divisive one, and which is what makes us very different to post-colonialist critical race theorists. You know, we haven't tried to create us, them, black, white, you know, what we've tried to create is not an identity politics type of way, theory or journey. Um, and my own journey through criminology has been one that's been, you know, 
I don't know, I've, I've gone through um, many different waves of theory, like most of us have, um, mm-hmm. I suppose. But I did start 30 years ago and with my PhD on girls and delinquency. Um, and then I've moved through there, but I've, I think most of my research has been critical. Most of my research has been um, realist. Most of my research has you know, adopted mixed methods. Mm. You know, I'm not precious about anything um, in terms of um, I don't have any predefined ideas about what what good research looks like. I'm not. I mean, I'm pretty agnostic about a lot of those things. Mm. Um, but I do really, and I really don't like people trashing others' work. I hate that that sort of bourgeois individualism of academia. I think because I just don't come from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really can't bear that that sort of, that 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 kind of of um, ad hominem type of trashing people or trashing their work or, or setting mm. them up as, um, as straws. I really don't respect those. Mm. Kinds. I think it's. It's, it, it's very much a kind of a, a way of, of, of reproducing hierarchies of knowledge through bullying. So I just don't, I really don't don't gel with that. Um, I've always been a bit of a, um, on an outer, you know, in the sense that pushed boundaries of feminism. Right. right. You know, I've really pushed the boundaries of feminism because a lot of feminism is really white, middle-class feminism. And you know, trying to get feminists to see that what they were writing about in criminology was about the experience of white middle class women, mm. um, not the experience of most women. I and mean, if you look yeah. at most women in the criminal justice, and they're not white, <laughs> they're not middle class. Mm. <laughs> so you know, so that was one thing I used, I really pushed for a while. And you know, I didn't get myself out of favour with feminists for a while there. But I think they mm. realised it's not. But it's not an act. I was never taking any individual person or anything. It's just a, a discourse, really. Mm. Always been influenced yeah. by Foucault. Still am in discursive constructions of knowledge power. Um, but I've always taken on some giants. Um, you know, I've always got myself involved in David Goliath battles okay. to my own disadvantage at times in the real any world. That jump out in particular? Well, yeah, I took on police once. In, right, um, right. Over the rape and murder of Lily, mm. wrote a book about it. Who killed Lily? Ended mm. up being hauled before a, a royal commission and cross-examined for three days by eighteen barristers and called everything under the sun. Wow. Um, and that was a really unpleasant experience. And um, mm. there was hardly anyone from the criminal community who came to my my aid and said, you know. Um, so what happened to me was exactly what they do to assault victims in the, in the box. Mm. Um, and so I was being constructed as, a, as, as an hysteric, as a feminist, as a, as a liar. Mm. So I went through that. It was absolutely horrific. But in the end, you know, that was in 1999, but 2000, 20 years ago now. I'll never forget it. Um, and I still often say to my husband how much I hate the bastards. <laughs> um, and I, st- I still do uh, mm. because they put me through hell, my yeah. family through hell. Um, Sounds horrendous. And yeah. and and they they used the threat of jail against me. You know, they wanted me to be feel that that threat of the state. They, mm. I was I was up for contempt. Um, um, so that's what they were trying to get me for. And then it's contempt what, what gets you 
put you in jail in Australia. So, and they were threatening me with it all the time, every day. Mm. So that was really hideous time wow. in my life, and yeah. that was all because I was trying to stand up for justice for a fourteen-year-old girl who was raped and murdered, and in the process, I exposed a whole lot of cops who who had behaved absolutely reprehensibly, and then a then a whole stack of judges and a massless justice system that called her a slut and blamed her for her own fate. Mm. So mm. it all started off with me doing that piece of research, yeah. me writing a book, and then it ended up me in the same position. Wow! Yeah, it was horrible. Sounds, um, yeah, sounds horrible. And so, yeah, it sounds look, like it took re- over. It did, but so I never did that again. Yeah. Um, but um, so I've always been involved in some David Goliath battles, and I, but I think the, the the Southern criminology one is, is is another one of those those David Goliath battles. But 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 I think there's many more Davids than there are Goliaths in this hmm. one. Yeah. Great, thank you. And you know, you've you've mentioned your husband a couple of times. Is it? Do you do you discuss theory constantly around the table? Is that is that what is what's it what's it like being just constantly in the criminology world? Yes. Well, uh, yeah, we do. Yeah. Yes, we do indeed. Um, yeah, and and, and um, we don't always agree, of course. Um, <laughs> and when we write together, you know, he'll scrub out my words and I'll scrub out his. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'm always shortening his sentences. Mind yeah. you, I do the same. With, it's actually better if I write with the third person. Yeah. Because we have um, <laughs> an arbiter. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> and so I tell my, my colleagues have been in that position. And so um, but Maximo will tell you um, the Spanish like to write sentences that are a paragraph long. Yeah. And yeah. I always cutting up his sentences and he's, did you cut out my sentence? Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah. here, Maxima and Russell always complain about me cutting up their sentences, yeah. but but it makes it readable. Yeah. Um, no, so um, no, no, no. We we all gel, um, yeah. and you know, we're also great friends and colleagues, and family friends, and yeah. I mean, though we live it half a world away, but um, we spend a lot of time. In each other's parts of the world, warm before COVID. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, I, so, um, yeah. But look, Russell's my. You know, I often call him my brain's trust, uh, bouncing board. Mm. Yeah. And when when we got when I go back now to read books you've co-written, I can't remember what part I've written, and he can't remember what mm, part he's written. Because we 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 write because it's a cycle. We don't go. You're right. That chapter. I wrote, we write it and then we'll, yeah. we'll give it to each other. Then we'll rewrite it. Then we'll yeah, genuinely it. co-written. It's a, it's it's kind of like a uh, yeah. So I'll, yeah. I we we take might take a lead on a, on a particular chapter. Like I'll take a lead on gender chapter, but then mm. it'll look completely different by the time he's finished with it, and he'll take a lead yeah. on a punishment chapter. But it'll look yeah. completely different by the time we're finished with it. So it's a process. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I and think I'm very fortunate to be married to him and very fortunate to have, you know, um, have a lifelong partner with whom I can constantly, you know, share ideas and ideas. And no, I, yeah, I mean, it does sound great. I'm, I'm sure he says the same as well. Um, I don't know yeah. about that. He'd, he'd much rather have someone who doesn't cut up in sentences. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he's secretly grateful. 
But, you know, a theme of what you've said there is about, um, you know, making bridges between people thinking differently, different points of view and this kind of thing. And, you know, one of the things I like to end on is thinking about, you know, how we can amplify impact and how we can, you know, bring people together for sort of progressive change and things. And so I like to get people to think about, you know, hypothetically, if we could construct a room where we could put, say, 50 people in, you've got half an hour to speak to them about. In terms of how you want to get your key messages across, who do you think we should be putting in that room? And what are the kind of key points you'd want to be saying to them? Oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness, that's a hard question. <laughs> it's been a long day, and it's, it's early morning for me and, and late in the day for you, so... Uh, yeah, well, no, it's had a long really... day. 50 people, who would I put in that room? Yeah. And what's the purpose again? Say it again. Yeah, so just like in terms of thinking about impact and like getting your key messages across, like if, if you know, if we could put 50 people or however many you, you want to, but just like the key messages that you would want to get across, um, you know, there's, there's so many of us that are, feel really passionately about the things we work on, but we, the, our views or, you know, the topics don't always get as much airtime as we think they deserve. Mm. And so if you got undivided attention for half an hour to speak to some key people just to get really get across your ideas um and they 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 come willingly (laughs) and they happily listen to you is are there certain people that you really want to target in terms of trying to uh, influence how they think about criminal justice that's really tough because i don't often think about things so individualistically um that's interesting yeah I mean, I mean, if, if I wanted influences in the room, if you wanted influences, well, I'd like yeah. David Garland to listen to me for once. <laughs> but yeah. that's, uh, but um, I mean, I've known him for years. He's a great guy, um, but not so I've been interested in anything. I mean, there are some people who are key influences who I think would be good. Mm. So you're asking for people, or you're asking for what? Well, just generally. So, like, so some people will, you know, work on a specific topic, and they say, right, I want to speak to all of the justice ministers because it's the politicians that I need to get through. Other people are saying, oh no, I want to speak to the prison governors because they're the ones that have control in the prisons, or it's you know the police chiefs, or it's the Bobby on the beat, oh. or it's you know okay, different people. Okay. Have, or some people just say, yeah, Trump. You know, <laughs> they want to. You know, oh, because, okay, because, okay. So, it's, however, I'd you feel like that, just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I'd like to, I would would really like to get all the editors of the journals together to speak to them mm. about what we could do as a group to form a coalition against Elsevier and how we could move forward in a way to um, um, unravel the you know the, the incredible domination of the production and distribution mm. of knowledge. I think that's I think that's what I, I mean. I think that would be great. And yeah. how can we make knowledge? Um, um, truly democratic. How can we? And I think we could only do that if we, we got that. all the. If we <laughs> got we the that? journal we editors, <laughs> we got all the journal editors. We got from all the big journals on board, and they all said to the Elsevier and all the, and said, right, we're all going on strike. Hmm. I mean, I I don't, you know, we're not, we're not whatever, but build a campaign around hmm. democratizing. I think I'd like to build a campaign around democratizing knowledge, and I think the journal editors are absolutely critical. And then, I mean, they have built a coalition. Um, there is coalitions for open access building 
But unfortunately, the model in a higher education neoliberal university is one that completely undermines that because because promotion is so much based on publication and cheer journals and impact mm. and everything. You know, individuals can't boycott. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. But I think yeah. that editors like myself and librarians and universities who have money who are paying for these things um, – um, and I, I think maybe if academics could harness the support of their universities to, to establish open access journals of mm. quality, of quality. Now, the problem they've got is that when they first start, they're always it's always this is an assumption that they're you know predatory journals. But right, if it's started right. by a university, and it, like we, and if it, if it, and then you immediately there's all these things you have to do practically to dis, dis to um, disentangle yourself. From, from being seen as a predatory journal, and there are a lot of practical things. But I'd like to pass that knowledge on because I did it with our journal, mm. and I'd like to see many more journals like our journal in all sorts of fields. So I think that's one thing I'd really like to do. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds great. And so, dear listener, if you are an editor or a librarian or you know an editor or a librarian, go speak to Kerry <laughs> about this because it sounds great. Yeah, we need to form a movement. Initiative. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think yeah. that's probably what I do. Yeah. And well, then that I way, I, I have tried. I would try. I, I would invite their, all the editors. I'd like to speak to all the editors of all the journals and criminology, and so that you know, how can we form a coalition? Hmm. And I know yeah. that the British Journal of Criminology has gone some part of the way because they stood up to their publisher, and now at least, if you come from um, one of the poorer parts of the global south, you no longer have to pay to have your article published. So right. I take my hat off to, mm-hmm. now that was Sandra Warplatt drove that innovation through. Now she drove that through because she's been so connected with us and Southern theory and Southern criminology. And, and, and you know, that's what I mean by bridging global divides and what mm. can come out of it. And that's a really good thing that's come out of that. Yeah. And just on that note, maybe to finish on, are there any other things that you think that scholars, students, people working in the global north can do to support this initiative more? Obviously, you've, you've talked about journals there, but just, you know, at, at first I know lots of people think, well, that's to do with the global south, nothing to do with me, and I'll just carry on with the theories that are relevant to the global north. Um, one so thing how, they could you say do is, okay, well, one thing they could do is have a look at our free open access journal. Next time they just do a search, there's now hundreds of papers published from people from all over the world and, you know, have a look at what they've written about a particular topic. You open your minds. I mean, the stuff that's coming into the journal is absolutely phenomenal. And it's mm-hmm. stuff, you know, like uh, um, um, most people don't know anything about the history of criminology in, um, in Latin America. But it has, like, the stuff about Colombia is just phenomenal. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much that you can learn. Um, in Colombia, the critical criminologists got caught up in a revolution and children were shot dead and, the palace. I mean, that was in the. In, and so that, you know, there's just so much to learn from yeah. this rich history of our discipline. And so much of it has occurred outside of the global north. So I think just looking, having an open mind, and thinking next time I'm writing an article, just don't go to your normal go-to journals. You know, mm. Have a look at ours. Have a look at the Asian Journal of Criminology. Have a look at some others. Yeah. Um, you know, just you know, push yourself out of your comfort zone. I think. And, and I think, and quote people, and quote Indigenous girls, and, you know, I think um, 
there's a there's a tendency within academia to create cliques and issues and mm. self referential groups. I think um, I think Punishment in Society was one of those journals, but it realised it was doing that and it's opened itself up. And it, oh, that's the other thing: journals can, can open up their international editorial boards. There's been a wonderful piece of research by Patricia Rado Cabana in Spain, from Spain, from the University of Coronia. Mm. And she discovered that um, international journals published in the Global North aren't very international at all. <laughs> they call themselves international, but they <laughs> might have less than 10% of their international board members outside of England mm. or outside of US or outside of Canada. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of our own practices that can be improved. Mm. Brilliant. Anyway, that's. I think that's a great that. place, yeah, to stop and a, a yeah. great call to okay, action cool. as well. No, it's brilliant. Okay. So, Kat, thank you so much for today. I found it really interesting and I think lots of people will as well. Thank you, Omar. It's uh, been great talking to you and um, yeah, there'll be a fair bit for you to uh, edit there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's, okay. that's great. Thanks okay. so much. Ciao. Hasta luego. Bye. Okay, thanks for listening. Kerry got back in contact with me and said on reflection she'd like to pay some homage to her intellectual role models, including Elliot Curry, Jock Young, Stuart Hall, Pat Carlin, Rosemary Barbaret, Maximus Sozo, John Braithwaite, as well as, of course, Raywin Connell. And if you like this episode, you may enjoy some previous ones where the interviewees have cited Kerry as one of their intellectual role models. That includes episode one with Dr. Roxana Cavacanti, which is on a southern criminology of violence, youth and policing, or episode 11 with Dr. David Rodriguez-Goyes, which is on a southern green criminology. Hope you enjoy them, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.